Genesis 15, 1-21 After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens, and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep came upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about, when the sun had set, that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. The Word of the Lord. Twenty-six years ago, when Corey and I first started dating, one of our first big dates was to go bungee jumping at Snoqualmie Pass. Now, at the time, bungee jumping was relatively new to the popular, you know, consumer. Um, but we went with a reputable company that had a good track record, you know, like no deaths and lots of great uh, testimonials on their on their site and everything. So anyway, we got to the spot, a short, a short hike through the woods, and then we get to this abandoned train trestle. And this thing is like 175 feet in the air. And then down below is just like rocks and a little stream, like maybe a several inches deep, but nothing you'd want to splash into. They had a spotless track record, the newest equipment, and wanting to prove my studly self. Uh, all of those things were in favor of me bungee jumping. But I looked down and I was like, dang, that is a long way. And I'm thinking, what an insane sport. I don't care if you throw a jetpack on me. I'm like, like to throw yourself off a bridge is just not natural. So I kind of began to 
ask the experts again, like these dudes who are running the show here. And it's like, how many times have you guys done this? And how do you know I won't hit the ground? And how will you get me back up on this bridge when I jump off this thing? On the one hand, I had all of this evidence, like all their past track record. And then on the other hand, I had the unknown of the future. Like I did not know that it would work for me. How do I know I won't be the first statistic to tarnish their record? In the end, it just came down to trust and the sense that if I didn't do it, I'd probably lose this girl that I wanted to date. So I jumped twice, actually. I jumped twice and the second time by my ankles and it was super fun. Now, I had some doubts. Do you think that was justified? I mean, I think that was totally justified. But why is it that sometimes when we talk about faith and doubt in the church, it's like those questions aren't being allowed to be asked. It's like there's a negative connotation. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that in my experience, there's been several church settings in the past that have either made it clear that, that asking certain types of questions were off limits, or I just received simplistic answers that didn't really honor the complexity of my concerns. Bungee jumping is one thing. But at least you can talk to the people running the show. You can in, in touch and inspect the equipment. You don't have to do it. You don't have to bungee jump. But the Christian faith tells us that we are to trust in this God that we can't see and trust that the God that we can't see made the world that we can see, at least at some point in history. And, and he became human and that he died and, and was raised from the dead and now reigns over this mixture of life, of tragedy and beauty and, and all of the things in between. And we're told, told that to follow him, we need more than just intellectual belief in him, but we need to reorganize our lives to repent and to trust that the things that he says to do and, and, and the way he says to live is better than the what than what the majority of the voices in our world tell us is good about life. Now, that's hard enough without certain church cultures telling us that we can't ask questions or have some doubts. So I want you to hear loud and clear that it's my conviction that one, God is big enough and secure enough to endure our questions. I'm pretty sure he's heard them before. Number two, the church community of all communities should be a safe place to ask questions with honesty because, because, number three, when we come to our own conclusions about faith in Jesus, our conclusions become convictions that have power to change the way we live. And that's why one of our core values at Letters Reads Covenant Church is to create a culture of listening, learning, and questioning. That's why our youth group, C1, is going through not confirmation, but Y Street, that Christie's creatively named it Y Street after the lettered streets and questioning. It's, it's a curriculum based on questions that, that our kids have about life and faith and the Bible and all kinds of things. Our scripture reading today was from Genesis 15, 1 through 21. And I love this chapter because for one, it deals with God working in the life of a real person in history with real doubts. And it shows how gracious and loving and good God's intentions toward us really are. If you have your Bible with you, you'll notice that chapter 15 begins with the words, after these things. So bear with me for a few minutes as I just summarize what these things the story is referring to. So a couple chapters earlier, at the end of chapter 13, God tells Abram to look out in all directions and to look upon the land. 
and that that would be the land, as far as he could see, that Abram's descendants, his seed, would inherit. So Abram and his clan go about their business as nomadic ranchers, and meanwhile, Lot, his nephew, settled in the nearby city of Sodom. In chapter 14, a bunch of kings with really hard-to-pronounce names like Kador, Laomer, go to battle with each other. And in the fray, Lot and his family and all their possessions get captured. Now, in that culture, Abram was responsible for defending his family because he was the eldest male in the family. So Abraham goes all Delta Force and he takes 318 choice men from his his group of warriors and he sets up a strategy and he conquers all these foreign kings and he takes Lot. Abram returned to Canaan with all of this booty, all the spoils of war, and two kings come out to meet Abram. Their names are Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which is pronounced Shalem, uh, roots with Shalom, of course, but also it is the ancient spot that would become Jerusalem. Okay, so he's the king of, uh, and then he's the king of Salem, and then there's this other king who's the king of Sodom who doesn't get a name in the story. Melchizedek greets Abraham with bread and wine. Does that sound familiar about any other meals we do in church with bread and wine? And he declares his victory as a result of God delivering him. So Melchizedek says to Abram, congratulations, God has delivered you. Now, on the other hand, the king of Sodom doesn't even so much as thank Abraham. Instead, he says, you know what, Abraham, you can keep a portion of the spoils of war. Go ahead. Those are yours. Now, here's the dilemma. Abram would be a wanted man by the kings he defeated. He would also have been tempted to keep the the bounty of war because it would have instantly increased his wealth, allowed him to obtain more men to protect him against all this retaliation that was surely to come his way. But here's how Abram replies. I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong, or anything that is yours, for fear that you might say, I've made Abraham rich. Now, it's directly after this act of faith that God reveals to Abram in Genesis 15, and notice what he says. He says, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. Now, this is significant because in following God, we often... uh, We often give up opportunities to get ahead by the world's estimation of getting ahead. And in this case, Abram Abram gave up wealth and security. He gave up that opportunity by saying no to the king of Sodom. And so God meets him at his greatest point of anxiety, and he offers him more than protection of men. He, He offers to be Abram's shield, and he offers more than a monetary reward. As the story will tell, he offers Abraham uh, what no one can give, descendants of his own and the promised land. Now, just remember with me, because it's been a long time since we've journeyed through Genesis together. Remember what God has done for Abram thus far. First, when we meet this guy, he is without hope. He, he, he's got no child and, and he's, he and his wife are unable to ever have children. He's from a pagan family, worshipers of the moon god Sheen. And the god of the universe, Yahweh, comes to him and said, leave this behind, leave everything that you've known, and I'm going to make you a great nation. Through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. 
Abram had triumphs of faith, like trusting in the Lord more than the king of Sodom, and he has extreme failures of faith, like telling Pharaoh that Sarai, his wife, was really his sister, just to protect his own skin. And through triumph and through failure, God not only remained faithful to Abram, but he blesses him, and he blesses him, and he blesses him. So Abram has all this information, a track record with God in which God has always come through. And yet, there's a lingering doubt in Abram's gut. There's this remaining fact that he and Sarai simply can't have children. There's God's word that he's going to, uh, to bless Abram and Sarai with a family of their own. And then there's biology, which is a really hard thing to go against. And God offers Abram this great reward, but Abram is still down in the dumps because he's got no heir to his inheritance. The text implies that Abram might have to offer his inheritance to the family servant Eliezer in exchange for Eliezer taking care of Abram and Sarai in their old age. So he's, he's really concerned, like, who's going to watch after us and our, uh, our livelihood? Um, it's almost like he's going to have to pay his servant with his inheritance just to make sure that he has a retirement plan. And here God makes a promise and his track record to prove that he has never broken his word. And Abraham doubts. He doubts. He doubts God after this track record of faithfulness. Now, notice, does God get mad? Does God excommunicate Abram uh, for lack of faith? Or maybe more foundational, is Abram's doubt the same thing as lack of faith? The key, I believe, is in the way Abram addresses God. In the Hebrew, he literally says, Sovereign Lord, what will you give me since I'm childless? Sovereign Lord means master. It means Lord. It means one who is over me, one who is mastery over me. Abram has a crisis of doubt, but he addresses his complaint to the sovereign Lord, meaning he still places himself under God. He asks his question with humility and genuine concern and genuine sorrow. Abram didn't put himself on the same level of God, saying, prove it to me, or I don't think you can do anything like what you're saying to me. No, Abram recognizes God as God, and at the same time, he confesses his lack of ability to see how it's all going to work out. And I think it takes faith to ask questions. If Abram doesn't have any faith in God, he wouldn't have wasted his time asking. It's the same thing with my bungee jumping story. If I didn't think the people running the show were authorities who knew what they were talking about, I would have just walked off the bridge. It does no good to ask them if they think the bungee will hold me or how many times I've done it if I don't think they know what they're talking about. As the story goes, God hears Abram's genuine doubts. And so he encourages him and reassures him that he'll, he'll have an heir of his own with his own biological function. And he takes him outside in, in what I imagine to be a spectacular night sky, because it doesn't say, I might as well imagine it. And it's in the desert and it's before city lights were ever invented. And just count the stars if you can, he says to Abram, your descendants will be like that. What a fascinating response. And what makes it fascinating to me is what God does not say and what God does not do. See, in our world, we are so driven by the empirical, by what we can touch, taste, smell, feel, right? Like, at least we think we are driven by the empirical. 
We think we are so rational and logical, and we want everything tested and proven. We want a roadmap to show us the way so that we can feel in control. But I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think we're driven more by our convictions and our feelings. We only act because we have an emotional response to things in the end. For example, how much information is out there about how bad smoking is for you? It's been out there since I was a kid. I mean, there's just tons of information. So the other day, Samara and I are walking the dog through Cornwall Park, and we smell cigarette smoke coming out of a car. Uh, it was cigarette smoke, not the other kind. But anyway, she asks, uh, Dad, why do people smoke? That's a great question. Like, it's not because it's good for you, um, and it's not because it makes you smell good. Um, it's not because it makes you function better biologically. Well, I guess they just really want to. It's because it makes you feel a certain way, even though it defies logic. See, twice in the story, Abram has doubts. First, doubt about not having an heir. And second, doubt about how he can know that God will give the land to his descendants. And to the first doubt, God showed Abram the stars. And in the second doubt, God gives Abram a vision. But God didn't do anything that would stand up under the scientific method or be credible evidence in a court of law. He doesn't prove anything. He doesn't give Abram more information. He gives him revelation. He reveals something deep to him. See, Abram had all the information. His life was an account of God's faithfulness. And I suspect, if you think about it, so is yours. I mean, you're here, alive, you, you're in a world that you didn't create, drawing breath that you didn't earn, listening to the free gift of the gospel. Amen? No, God didn't give Abram more information. He gave him revelation. He gave Abram signs, signs that didn't prove anything, but signs that evoked faith and deep within Abram's heart. And so it is with the mystery of faith. Faith is a gift from God. Trusting Jesus isn't just merely a matter of having all the facts and weighing the pros and cons and then making a decision. There's an aspect of faith being something that's given to us, of God releasing in us the ability to believe, and this is called revelation. Now, I'm sure you've experienced this if you think about it. Like, why is it that you can hear something 99 times, but on the 100th, it, it suddenly clicks for you? How is it that the two men on the Emmaus Road were walking for hours and then all of a sudden they realize it's Jesus when they broke bread with him? Uh, they didn't realize it was him. And then they say, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures? How is it that you read the same passage of scripture, but each time you do, it takes on a different meaning or evokes a new level of response? God reveals himself to us and in us in his own way and in his own time. Yeah, it's absolutely important to know some things about God, to know his word. I mean, I graduated seminary with, you know, cost a lot of money because I believe in loving God with my mind. But without revelation, all forms of knowing are simply, simply just knowing stuff. It could be dead. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that he prays that God would give the followers of Jesus, and I quote, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge. That's the, the intimate knowing of God. He then continues, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be open so that you would know what is the hope of his calling 
And what are the riches of grace in his inheritance in the saints? And what is his surpassing power toward us who believe, who trust in him? Paul prays for revelation and that the eyes of the heart to be opened. And it's through revelation that we change. It's through revelation that Abram believed. Walter Brueggemann writes about Abram. He's now permitted God not to be a hypothesis about his future, but the voice around which his life is organized. Abraham repented. He's abandoned a reading of reality which is measured by what he can see and touch and manage. So friends, bring your doubts before God. Read the Psalms if you want to know how how to give a good godly complaint. And pray for revelation. Pray for the gift of faith. Pray for God's perspective. Too often, we're driven by fear or duty or some doctrine that someone forced down our throats. And that's never going to change us, at least not for very long. What we need is God to breathe on the scriptures and on the doctrine and on the information to give it life. We need the breath of revelation. And so how can we trust God? Well, the answer to this question is revealed to Abram and to us in this vision in Genesis 15. God tells Abram to get all these animals. This sounds so weird, right? He cuts them in half and he makes two rows of carcasses. So like half a cow over here, half a cow over there, half a bird over here. You get it? You know what I'm saying? It's just gross. It's like the, I don't know, what do you call it? Cavern of Carnage? We can come up with a better name. <laughs> Valley of Venison? No, okay, I'll stop right there. Anyway, we, we, what we have from ancient treaties and stuff, from ancient writings, are, are these treaties between kings and their subjects. They're called Vassal Treaties. And, and in these treaties, two parties are making a covenant with one another. And they would perform a ceremony just like this one. And the weaker, so like if there's a king and a subject or something like that, or a king and a weaker king, the, the weaker one would pass through the carcass of animals, okay? And, and the Hebrew word for making a covenant literally means cutting a covenant. It's like, like you might say, uh, we cut a deal by shaking hands or, or, or whatever. So the action of walking between the carcasses was a way of calling down a curse on oneself, saying, if I do not fulfill my side of the covenant, may I be like these animals dead. And it was always the weaker of the two, the one with less power that would pledge themselves to the one with more power. And it's the weaker one that walks through this and brings down this curse on themselves if they're not loyal to the more powerful one. Now, here's the amazing part about this vision that God gives Abram. Who is it that passes through the carcasses in the vision? Well, it's this smoking oven and a flaming torch. Where have you heard fire and smoke and being together in the Bible before. Well, Exodus, the pillar of, of fire and smoke. And what do these pillars of fire and smoke represent? Well, they represent God's very presence. So in this vision, it's God himself who cuts the covenant with Abraham, and it's God himself who goes through the carcasses, invoking a curse on himself, should he default on his end of the promise to Abram. Isn't that amazing. Uh, clearly, he has the, the more authority and the more power in this, in this relationship, but it's God who humbles himself and walks through. This is one of the most gospel-loaded scenes in all of Genesis. Now, why is God worthy of our trust? 
Well, because he's the kind of God who would call down a curse on himself before he would go back on his own promise. This is a God who gives everything in order to establish right relatedness with his people. And even more amazing is the fact that God has never gone back on his promise to Abram, but he still gave himself on the cross. In Jesus, he came into the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, but those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe or who trust or who have faith in his name. It was this one who gave himself for the world, Jesus, from God through the seed of the line of Abram. That's the information. Now let's pray for the revelation.